HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Somerset County Tourism. Hear stories from local brewers and distillers from the New Jersey Sip and See Trail on episode 647 of Beer Sessions Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hola familia, um, super excited. We're uh, here. We're embarking on season four of Cooking in Mexico from ADZ. I'm Aaron Sanchez, your host, alongside my beautiful madre, mother. Serena Martinez. We are super excited to invite somebody that we admire immensely uh, alongside his wife, his beautiful wife, Solange. Uh, and their wonderful daughter, Olivia, who we all love. Uh, we're going to be talking today about the seafood in Mexico, on cooking in Mexico from A to Z. And this is a beautiful, beautiful topic because we have somebody that uh, joining us today that I just admire, not only as a chef, but as an ambassador for Mexico, uh, a friend, uh, a fellow master chef judge. Uh, uh, I consider him the lead judge of Master Chef Latino. And uh, <clears throat> he's just a beautiful human that cares so much about his country, cares about our, his food ways, and all this beautiful stuff. Um, I can go into it. He has his restaurant, Manzanilla. It's been open for 20 years, alongside his beautiful wife. I mean, he is just a man. And we're talking about the seafood of Mexico, and we're going to talk about that. And let me introduce Benito Molina. So happy to be here. Great honor to be with you and Sarela. Sarela, qué gusto. So excited to be here, you know, and to talk about something I really love, which is the sea. That's why I live in Ensenada. That's why I moved to Ensenada from Mexico City. I live in front of the ocean. It's it's my inspiration for cooking. I hear, I hear that we have something in common, that we're very interested in the eco-preservation of the area. Exactly. When I was, uh, when I was 15 years old, he went to... Outward bound for kids at risk. He was having a, he was quite a handful. And at that time, I took his, his twin brother Rodrigo and a young boyfriend I had with Fulvio Acardi. You know who Fulvio Acardi is? No. And his girlfriend, and, oh, well, Fulvio has been the proponent of, of biodiversity, of, 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 you know, an amazing photographer. Enriqueta was working in Isla Raza, you know, when, when they, when they bounced 
when they jump one the anchoeta, you know, in the in the food chain. That was at the time when they were when they were you know the Japanese were coming in and taking the shark fins, and you know and throwing the sharks back in. And we went from one uninhabited island to another, listening to this brilliant man tell us all about the ecology of this area. It was magical. And 30 years ago, imagínate, 30 years ago, you know? And and they, and also, Julio was part of Me Mexico Desconocido, no, mommy, Right? Yeah. Well, he was a contributing editor to that magazine, right, Mom? I don't know about the magazine, but he's, he was the head of Bonavio. And, yeah, you know, yeah. he's he, he took me at one time to all the... UNESCO heritage sites. Mm. So we went with him everywhere. That's how I got to get so involved in in biological, you know, uh, preservation, and I was involved in cultural preservation. So Benito, let let's start from the beginning, no? So we have a little bit of context with everybody, okay? So okay. you're you're a proud Chilango. Oh no, maybe not anymore, but. We're not going to get mad at you. Well, it all depends who you ask. <laughs> but what brought you to Baja initially? What brought you to Ensenada? What brought you there? So you can share with our listeners. Well, I would first have to start that uh, my uncle, my mother's uh, brother, Tio Ricardo, he's a marine biologist. And since I was a little kid, it would be like just so amazing when he would come for Christmas and bring, he worked in an oyster farm. And, and that's how the curiosity about the whole thing started. And then after that, he worked in a shrimp farm in Panama. And then he moved to La Paz in Baja California Sur, where, the, where he started one of the first uh, shrimp labs in Mexico to produce larvae for, for the shrimp farms. So that was the first time I went to Baja. It was in La Paz, and I just fell in love with the place right away. I knew I, knew I was going to be buried in Baja. I just missed it by by like a thousand kilometers, La Paz and Senada, but, but it's here. And, and professionally wise, it happened, well, I went to high school in Ojai, California, and a couple of the kids in school, in the boarding school were from Ensenada. So I came to Ensenada with them the first time. It was a beautiful experience, a long weekend, and, and had a chance to try the food in the Carretas, Sabina, and all that, all those things that are so famous now. And uh, I was just in love too, you know, to see the, the vineyards and all of that, that you're not, you don't see so much in central Mexico. Not, not back then, because now Querétaro has grown uh, a lot in, in producing wine, Zacatecas too. But uh, one of my friends in the, in the boarding school, his father owned tuna boats and the boats were from Ensenada. And I will come back to that part of the story later, but... But eventually I work, I work on the tuna boats. I did two tours. The first tour, I was one month out at sea without seeing land. It was quite an experience. I was El Pavo. El Pavo is the last guy in the, on the crew, the guy who, who, who does the dishes, washes the bathroom, helps in the fishing too. And it was a Chilango on a boat full of people from Ensenada. So, so in the beginning, they were not so nice. After, they were very nice. Second tour was a month and a half, and uh, we stopped one night in Acapulco because it's a very big boat, capacity for 900 tons of tuna. 
So, and, and I did it before going to cooking school because I was really interested in seeing what was happening with the tuna fishing, especially since there was this story about Mexican uh, tuna boats fishing dolphins and canning dolphin meat. And that's how the whole embargo started. And uh, I wanted to see up close how true it was. And, uh, and it's, uh, I can say, I mean, from first hand, it's not true. I mean, a few dolphins do die, but I mean, it's the percentage is, is very, very low. And, uh, and all the human effort is done to save them. On the first trip, I think nine dolphins died and we caught 900 tons of tuna. So the, the percentage is like this much. And I mean, there is no natural predator for dolphins except sharks, which are endangered themselves. So, so there, there is no risk of dolphins just disappearing. No? And after that is that I went to cooking school. And then if you want, we go back to that later. But what happened is that Ensenada, the introduction to Ensenada for me was the carretas, the, the fishing fleet. And many years later, after cooking school, after working in France and in the United States, I was offered a job in Ensenada by Hugo da Costa. Hugo da Costa is one of the most important winemakers we have. Uh, he used to run the Santo Tomas Winery. It's the second oldest winery in America. And... Uh, I came for the interview and he showed me this beautiful old uh, room full with wine casks, but I mean like two-story high wine casks, the whole place smell of wine. It was so beautiful. Then went to the fish market and saw this amazing produce. Then went to the vineyards and he showed me this little cabin and he said, that's where the house we can give you if you take the job. And right there, I was like, I signed the papers right now, no? So, so I live in the vineyards for four years. It was an amazing experience. And I was the head chef for the Santo Tomas Winery for four years. On my third year is when I met Solange. And we, we worked there one year together. And after that, we decided to open our own place, which is Manzanilla. And this year will be 22 years since we opened. So that's, that's how Ensenada happened. Oh, man. And how were you doing? What was your menu like at that time? The menu at that time, well, I was, it was very interesting because when I, was, I came from Mexico City, I was working in Mexico City at the time, and to buy fish in Mexico City, I would have to get up at like 3, 4 in the morning, go to the fish market, La Central de Abastos, yeah. uh, La Nueva Viga, it's called, because the old Viga wasn't the big market anymore. And, and I mean, you have to like fight your way through the stands because you're just this little guy from a little restaurant trying to buy a few kilos of fish and everybody's buying tons of fish for the big hotels or big restaurants. And But that was not the worst. The worst was going back to the restaurant and doing like two, three hours in traffic <laughs> with the fish in the car. <laughs> that car smelled really nice. No, igual. And it was really, I mean, it was like mesmerizing or mind blowing when, when I got here and the, and I mean, I think it was the first week I got here, the fishermen knock at the door in the restaurant and they had this swordfish that was like four meters long, the door of the restaurant. So three hours of traffic in Mexico City, here the fish comes to the door. So the first years in, in Santo Tomas, it was still kind of, of, of an introspection, especially because I, I mean, the Mediterranean similarities are e evident here. I mean, we produce uh, olive oil, wine, I mean, the fish, you can see pictures and it looks just like the Mediterranean. So it was kind of confusing for me to, to adapt. Well, not 
confusing, yes, to adapt, not so much, but, but I mean, to apply all those years of working abroad and the techniques to the local ingredient was, was the, the thing. The last job I had in the States was with Todd English in Olives in Charlestown, the first Olives. At that time, he only had that one. He was in the line himself. And uh, it changed my whole way of looking at food. All my training had been very French. And to see this more, a lot more Italian, more Mediterranean, made much more sense for Mexican food and to me. And so, so to find the Mexican Mediterranean, if you want to call it like that, was just incredible. And, 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 and also, which comes to the subject we're talking about, the most important university for oceanography and bi on marine biology is here in Ensenada. So there is a lot of, of seafood that is produced from farms like oyster farm, abulone farm, mussel farms. Now we have uh, uh, some fish farms too. But when I got here, I mean, and I saw live abulone from the farm an hour away from Ensenada and abulone only eats seaweed. So it's one of the most uh, sustainable uh, aquaculture there is because they only eat the seaweed. They, they, they don't have to feed them any other things. And they grow on tanks next to the ocean and the water is put back in the ocean and it's clean from the abulone and the seaweed. And so it's, it's, it's very ecological and very ahead of its time because now everybody talks about sustainability and all of these things. But I mean, 25 years ago when the abulone farm opened, nobody even knew it existed. And abulone disappear here because when the Japanese came here many years ago, they almost took all the abulone. Almost, all, there was almost no abulone left. You know, have you heard of the, the farms in Panama where they feed the fish, uh, Oja Santa? No, no, that sounds fantastic. Yeah, so the fish already smells of Oja Santa. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah. Yeah, so Benito, your mission, obviously, through your judging and your experience, now you talk about the idea of what brought you to Baja. Now, let's talk about the idea of the evolution of manzanilla. How are the products changing? My mom alluded to it earlier when she said, you know, how was the menu changed? Because now we have sea urchins. We have uh, uh, the uh, almejas de chocolate and all these beautiful new products. What is, is inspiring you in the market now? you know, as far as your menu? Because I saw you posted something beautiful about those those crabs that you got the other day, and you were very excited about the crabs, you know? So, exactly, you know. exactly. I was going to talk about that. The crabs, the crabs, since I, was, I got here, there was a lot of stone crab. It's not exactly the same stone crab as you have in the Gulf of Mexico. It's more, it's more like a buey de mar, they call them in Spain. It's more, it's like a darker color and a little less meat. But recently, I mean, not like maybe four or five years ago, we started getting this new type of crab. Maybe it was already here and they, were, they weren't fishing so deep. But it's like ruby crab, cangrejo uh, secretai. I don't know how you call that one in English because you close <laughs> it and it looks like a desk. When it closes, it's closed. It's, it's just like a desk, like a desk, like a little box like this. And the beautiful centollo or the spider yeah, crab, that, I mean, in Spain, in the País Vasco, is just one of the 
En Chile, en Chile, en Chile también, en Chile. En Chile también. Exactamente. And something that is really funny, because we have, at the end of this month, we have one of the best events in Ensenada. It's el Festival de las Conchas y el Vino Nuevo. And, and, and it's uh, the, the shellfish producers, the, uh, the winemakers show their new releases for white and rosés. And, and a chef is involved. So it's gastronomy, produ oyster production, and we have different events. There is uh, scientific conferences. We have the wine tasting, the oysters tasting. And this year, the event will be 22 years too. And the first year we did it was in San Miguel, the very famous surf spot in the entrance of Ensenada. And maybe there were 20 people who attended. This year, we expect like 3,000 people to come and it's and it's and it's also smaller than it should be because because of COVID but but what the main thing that changed we had a, a, a press conference last week about it and it's really funny the oyster the muscle producer Sergio Guevara said something that that I mean it was hilarious back in those days the the local muscles would have to they would have to say that they come from New Zealand enable for people to buy them no So for buyers to be attracted to the, this product, they had to say it was not from Mexico and people would say, oh, that's good. So they would buy this, this thinking it was green lip mussel, the New Zealand type, and it was not. It was the mussel that was produced here because of the university in the first place. And, and now it has completely changed. 20 years later, the mussels from New Zealand, they're saying they're from Ensenada because Ensenada is just the hype. There is oysters or mussels or fish in every top restaurant in Mexico. I mean, across the country, you will find ingredients from Ensenada. So are those oysters, like the little fat ones that you find, uh, what kind of oysters are We have Craciostrea uh, gigas, which is more like the European oyster. It's a, it's a thick shell. It's not like a belon. It's not flat. Mm. And we also have some Kumamoto. Mm. Oh, the Japanese, yeah. that is, you know, like the shell is deeper and smaller yeah. shells. So we have like three types of oysters and, and they're being produced in, in a, some here in Ensenada, some lower in the Baja and, and all throughout the peninsula. And you can taste the difference between the one region and another. Laguna Manuel is a very big one. We buy a lot from Laguna Manuela. Uh, where the whales come, the Ojo, Ojo, uh, Laguna Ojo de Liebre and all of those places, they produce fantastic oysters. The water is really cold and the, and the uh, microorganism in which the oysters feed is plenty of it. So we have really good production of oysters and the flavor. I, 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 when I work in France, I work in Brittany, which is very famous for the oysters, the Belon oyster especially. And... And, I, and I've loved oysters since I was a little kid. But when I came back to Mexico after working in France and I tried some oysters that were from uh, Tamiagua in Veracruz, I was just like, forget it. I'm not having oysters until I go back to France again. Yeah. Okay, well, it's good that you brought that up because I wanted to ask you, those are freshwater oysters, aren't they? Tamiagua works both ways. I mean, it's not completely fresh water. It's uh, agua salobre. I don't know how you say that in English. It's like half salted, half no, half sweet. Yeah, when they come in together, when the both exactly. waters come together. See, and it's a completely different flavor. And the ones here, since the ocean is so cold, because what happens here is that we have these currents called uh, corrientes de surgencia, surgency currents. 
they come all the way from Alaska to the surface in Ensenada Bay. So that's why the water is so cold, the air is so cold, and this cold air goes into the valleys and creates the microclimate. And that's why we have the wine and the olive trees and all of that. And so the oysters here are from very cold water. And when I tasted them, it reminded me right away of the oysters from Brittany. So the quality is fantastic. And what other fish are there in Ensenada? What other kind of fish? Well, we have tons of it. Right now, there's a very big thing with the bluefin tuna, which is a big controversy because, I mean, the bluefin tuna population has depleted uh, in, in uh, a big way. But especially, this is a thing to mention, it's, it's very, very bad in the North Atlantic. The, the Pacific bluefin tuna is not a, as in danger as the one in the Atlantic. And what we have here is uh, they, they catch the tuna, wild tuna, because it's not really a farm tuna, farm tuna. They catch the tuna in the wild. Then they drag them close to the coast here in the entrance of Ensenada. And uh, they put them in these pens, like circular pens, and they just feed them sardines for a long time until the, they get the nice fatty right, toro. Yeah. The nice fatty toro for the sushis. Yeah. And uh, orventresca in Spanish and... and uh, and so there is a big controversy about that because I mean the, the sea the sea bottom gets depleted because of all the all the food that drops down and I mean it's, it's questionable. But I mean all the all the bluefin tuna that is served in in the Mexican sushi places come from here and a lot and a lot of the tuna here is shipped to Japan. Straight to Japan. I mean the quality is is really, really good. But that's that's like the, the one with I mean some some uh, problems if you want to call it that but well, we have tons of wild fish rocot is my favorite uh, i've seen it called ocean perch is this red fish looks just like rascas the, the one from the mediterranean uh, lopon which is a sculpon fish which is also one of the fish used for bouillabaisse what is it called we have lobina we have it when the water gets warmer we have some maji maji or dorado sometimes wahoo uh, but mostly I would say cabrilla. Cabrilla is a type of bass. And uh, vieja, vieja is like sheep's head, which is the, the texture of that meat is, is beautiful. Uh, cabrilla, rock, the rocota I already mentioned, those would be like the typical fish you have, would have in like one of those fried fish places. And how about the ones that they put on the sticks and put on the grill? And the beach. Like the sardines, that's like a really crazy story because, you know, the sardines, I mean, people here don't really eat sardines and we have amazing sardines. We have this sardine taco in Manzanillo that is to die for. Mm -hmm. I've had it. And how do you put in it? It's black beans, uh, nopales, cactus salad, cactus pad salad, green salsa and sar fresh sardine juice on the pans, seared, ve seared very well on one side. Yeah, those those are, are so beautiful. And, and it's funny because, I mean, you go to the black market, which is a fish market here. That's what it, how it's called, El Mercado Negro. And the sardines are, are literally, I mean, not so much anymore. But when I got here, they had, had a sign, uh, Comida para las focas, food for the seals or the sea lions. And so you would go out and throw the sardines to the sea lions or the seals to, to eat. And now, now in Manzanilla, we buy most of the sardines they have because we, we really love them and we try to promote that a lot because sardines are amazing for a, 
all the all the omegas, all the vitamins, all the good stuff for you. And also the the impact in the ocean when you fish sardines is very small because sardines grow to their to their size, full size very fast. There is a lot of sardine. That's another of the controversies of, of the bluefin because they're fishing all the sardines to fish the, to feed the bluefin. Some purist people say that the fish, the, the tuna now tastes like sardine because they feed them so much sardine. I mean, the wild tuna doesn't have... Well, well even, the, even, the chi- even the chicken tastes like that because they give them a lot of sardine powder. And that's one of the huge problems. They're making harina de pescado, the, the sardine powder. Or sardine flour. The chicken. the chicken and the dogs. I mean, the, the, the food for the dogs has some of that powder too. And and I mean, my best example is the, the salmon. No, to, to, to make salmon, to produce one kilo of salmon, of, of farm salmon, you have to fish three kilos of wild fish, wild little fish that is going to be turning to, into uh, pellets to feed the salmon. So you're taking three kilos of fish out of the ocean to make one kilo of fish from a farm. So there is, I mean, there is no balance in that. So what are you, what are you doing about that? Well, we're trying, we're, I'm completely against salmon for, well, first of all, in Mexico, there is no salmon. I mean, throughout the thousands of miles of, of sea coast that we have in Mexico, Pacific, Caribbean, Gulf of Mexico, Sea of Cortez, there is not one salmon in Mexican water. So we should consume Mexican fish and help the Mexican fishermen or the fishing industry. So that's that's the number one. But then there is the ecological part because there is, of course, there is tons of salmon in the restaurants and, and houses because they made people believe that it's very healthy to eat salmon and, and not tell them what's really the truth behind salmon. I mean, I love salmon, don't get me wrong. Eh? Wild salmon, I think is beautiful and amazing taste. But but on the on what's going on with the over over farming and overfishing to support the farming of the salmon is is terrible. So I mean, me and Master Chef all the time, I'm like, don't eat salmon. And in the Mexican one, we didn't even have any challenges with salmon because I talked to the production and said, listen, we don't have any salmon in Mexico. Let's promote other types of fish. And we don't do salmon on Master Chef America, so you know. All right. Ooh, so yeah. we we with you, buddy. We with you. Dale, dale, mi querido. I'm sorry, but I do. I- I do my, my, one of my famous dishes is, is a salmon with a chipotle. It's good. Yeah, mommy, but mommy, but because you were in New York City. I'm kidding. You were in New York City, so it was okay to have salmon. Yeah. You know, and things have changed, and I, I think it's important. You know, back in the day, you used to have to make menus to have one white fish. You had to have salmon dish, a chicken, a pork chop, and all these kind of things to break down a menu. But now things have changed. Exactly, exactly. And it's and it's really funny because, I mean, in, in some way, the, the food of the 80s was like, let's bring all the ingredients we cannot have here, like truffles and salmon or, or caviar or some exotic ingredients. And, and throughout these last decades, we've learned that it's that we have to support the local producer and consume local. And, and I mean, and, and the no carbon este, track and, and all of that. So we have, so I think it's, in, in, it's very interesting what you asked Sarela before about how the, has the menu changed. I think it has changed not only in my case, but with many of the chefs that are more conscious, environmentally conscious, that we have to help the local farmer, the local fisherman. Uh, we don't sell, for example, uh, for many years in, in Santo Tomas, I used to sell a, 
uh, sterling silver, the meat from the States that is beautiful meat. But then one day I was like, listen, we're very into all Mexican ingredients, all local ingredients. So why am I not selling carne de Sonora, beef from Sonora? So I took a trip to Sonora and tried different ones. And now the beef we serve in Manzanilla is from Sonora. And it's very good. It's very good. But is it, is it age? We age it ourselves. Yes. Okay. Like uh, for, two, for two weeks, no more. I mean, because I tried more than that and I know a lot of people try it but i think after two weeks it gets this like haunting taste that it's just <laughs> too much Benito, so this is recent so i remember damn six years seven years ago i had some people from sonora come up to to visit me in new york and they're like orale tenemos esa carne de, de sonora de tu herencia de tu, tu patria and i'm like cool man let me just taste it and i was like cool bring it to me and mejeron la mano de obra, or you know, like the hand to cut it is cheaper than what you would buy in in the states. So of course, I tried to say, all right, let's make a deal, and they can never get me the beef. Fue no, una mexicanada, ¿me entiendes? Like a no, mexicanada, you know, like. No, it's un dolor de cabeza. Yeah, yeah, it's a big headache. Believe me, we still have the headache because I mean, I mean, and many times I'm I'm like, okay, maybe we should switch back. Especially since a lot of my friends work for U.S. Meat or, or, or Canada Beef. No? Federico Lopez is the ambassador for Canada Beef, so I could get Canada Beef very easy, but so you know, about, to work. You know, Mauricio, Mauricio is, 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 is starting with Uresti. Mm -hmm. he, used to run, he used to run the, the Canadian meat company press release. Mauricio, we had him on the, on the podcast. Mm -hmm. I, we just had some uh, Canadian ribeye. It was really, really good. Mm -hmm. I, I think I told you we're in Monterrey for all of uh, January. And I mean, Monterrey is yeah. a lot of, of meat eating. And people love meat and cabrito. And, and they have, I went to this store called, uh, I think it was called Premium XO or something like that. It was like a jewelry store for meat. Yeah. <laughs> it was just, I, I was so happy but you're not gonna <laughs> believe it all the meat that was sold there was not mexican yeah and i was like what's going on guys and they're just like well we send the cattle to the states it's cheaper to uh, to feed them there and then we buy it back oh okay very one of those weird things. wow wow it's one of those weird things but but i mean i mean the meat was good very good but i mean you have to be uh you have to behave according to what you say. I mean, we're saying we're just using Mexican ingredients. I mean, well, of course, once in a while we have this party and, and do like French theme or something like that. But, but on a day-to-day -day basis, we consume only local. And I mean, maybe some vinegars are not, are not from here or maybe the polenta or, or pasta or things like that but the main core of the of the manzanilla menu is all mexican we're pro we're nixtamalizing ourselves now we're doing our own tortillas the whole thing and this is important that you say that okay because this really upsets me as a chef a farm to table is not a novelty it's your responsibility exactly it's, it's been happening since the beginning of time find the ingredients closest to you manipulate them the least and put them on your menu. That's it. So when people say farm to table, it's, un, it's just una mamada. I'm sorry. Pardon, you know? But it's like that. Just do it. I mean, you know, when I had my restaurants in New York, we'd go to farmer's market every 
Wednesday and Friday because that was just the right thing to do. You know what I mean? And I think exactly. you have to go that to that route. I'm Jimmy Carboni, host of Beer Sessions Radio on HRN. I recently hosted a live podcasting event with local beer and spirits makers from beautiful Somerset County, New Jersey. We spoke on the farm that is home to Flounder Brewery and Belmar Distillery, one of the most beautiful stops along the Sip and See Craft Beverage Trail. To me, those two worlds, brewery and distillery, are extremely complementing businesses, especially in a unique location like this. So it immediately helped this become a destination to have a great experience, whether it's the beer atmosphere we've got going in here on the old barns or the great experience you can have in there with these incredible cocktails that are created there. It's complementary to each other. You can have two completely different experiences all within a 10-foot walk from each other. Before the event, I was able to tour the area and see the historic Bridge Tender's house along the serene DNR Canal, walk the bike and hiking trails, and take in the lush farmland. Then we settled into the centuries-old Dutch barn turned brewery for a lively discussion. It was always important for us to create our space, our livelihood that we want to share with everybody else of being a community-centric location. It is what makes us a brewery in this state different from a barn or restaurant. Um, you know, we're obviously family-friendly here. Um, we have a lot of different groups that have their meetings here during the week. We just really want to become a community hub. You can listen to this episode of Beer Sessions Radio, available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again to Somerset County Tourism for supporting this episode. Learn more about the Sip and See Passport Program at visitsomersetnj.org. That's visit visitsomersetnj.org. Now, here's the other question right now that I want to ask, because now we've talked a lot about it, your background. Let's talk a little bit about the importance of you representing the Latinos and the Mexicans and doing this whole thing with MasterChef, because this is very interesting, because people are going to ask me if we didn't do it, okay? So, you know, you are a representative for our people, as I am, and the idea that now you have an opportunity to mold these people, how has that been experienced for you? Because you and I, we came from Argentina with Utilisima and, and all of that, and we started out and, you know, and doing all that. And now you come to this place. How how has that been for you, Benito? Well, I think especially this last last Master Chef Latino was was I mean, on the first the first part is the beauty of, of understanding other other uh, cooking cultures of Latin America, no? To try to try Puerto Rican food, to try Cuban food, to try Colombian food because then we were in Colombia for some time too, and. Uh, and I mean, of course, the asados. I mean, the, the diversity, or like I say, a lot in Spanish, el abanico. The, ¿Cómo se abanico en inglés? Fan. Like fan, like que da vuelta. Exactamente. I mean, it's all of this, all of this culture from Latin America. And now with the internet, we have a lot more access to information. Before it was a lot of traveling or books. El de Oaxaca de Zarela lo tengo aquí en la casa. Ándale. <risa> que fue un tesoro de libro, ¿no? No. Totalmente, totalmente. Pero ¿sabes qué es lo que me dijo mi jefa? Es como mexicana no conozco mi propia país. Mi propio país. No, no, y no lo conocía en esa época. Yeah. Y tú te fuiste ahí a arrancarle, mami. 
Muy no, bien, no, adelante no. del tiempo. En muchos mexicanos no le hacen. Felicidades, claro, claro, y pasa mucho ahora, y lo ves con los jóvenes. You see with the young people, they are there more eager to go to Europe than to travel to Oaxaca. Exactly. Oaxaca is I don't know about that. Right now it's very hard to go to Mexico to, to study eating. So I think I think going back to your question, I think it's it's a it's a great honor, but also a great responsibility because you have to to, I mean, share with the Latin community. No, I think it's fantastic what's happening with Estrella TV and the last MasterChef Latino this season. That and and we're seeing it up close because I mean it's so big in California. We're getting customers from California. They want to try the food in Ensenada. I go to the tostadas with with the Sabina La Guerrerense. And, and and it's I think it's a big responsibility because we are much closer to to sh I, I don't like to say to teach but it's better to show no or to share this knowledge and to, and to share to share the passion for food throughout Latin America I mean and I mean and, and that's why master chef is, is so big here well in, in I mean all over the world but the thing is that all the things and I mean the education when you were a little kid is around the table is when you sit around the table with your family and try the food from where you are. I mean, that's what marks you for, for a long time. No? In my case, was Campeche. Actually, that's a painting from Campeche. From <laughs> La Iglesia de San Román. So, so I think it's, it's very important to, and to tell these things that, that because we have all this information and we should share it. For example, the salmon information, no, or what we were, or what you just say. I mean, the farm to table now has become this big moda or trend. I mean, this has been happening forever. La milpa is that. I mean, la milpa is you produce what you eat and and that's it. I mean, no, no, no need for big things. Of course, I mean now the demand and a lot of people don't want to cook. But one of the good things from pandemia was that. People had to cook. Eres un encanto, mi Benito. ¿Cómo hace tiempo, cabrón? No, ¿Cómo te quiero? Oh, man. Ah, yo no, también. No, no. Eres mi compadre, mami. Well, you know, you, 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 was, you kept on saying the word share, but I have to, you were spared the, the, my usual opening. Because one time when we were doing research for Oaxaca, we came upon this graduation ceremony in a little village in, in Manzapatepeco. And they invited us to the celebration that followed. And one of the parents stood up and said, Hago este crecimiento porque solo no se puede compartir la vida. Otros tienen que estar ahí. So that became my, my theme. Alone, what can I share life? No, pues bravo. Andale. Bravo, qué bonito. Mira, they're like a power couple. And when you meet Solange, mom, oh... Well, I just, I then, I just like to add something that that is very important. I mean, in my eyes, because I mean, of the fish thing that I was talking. I mean, it's always been my love, and and the, and the fish, the way fish is cooked in Mexico throughout the coast, especially in the Pacific coast, is pescado frito, or ceviche. But recent years, I mean, a lot of the young guys who have gone to school and work abroad and all of that that has changed. I mean, the the temperature of Cooking fish has completely changed. I mean, you you now eat fish the right. I mean, I don't want to say the right way, but I mean in a, in a more respecting the ingredient way. Because if you overcook something, you lose tons of flavor. I mean, you dry it. So, 
So I think that's one of the biggest contributions of Ensenada because now Ensenada, I mean, it's, it's, it's like I say before, it's on every menu, on every top restaurant across Mexico, you see the Ensenada ingredients and it's, and it's become this, this awareness of respect of the seafood, of the product. And how, did, how did the smoked tuna come about? The smoked tuna, that's a very interesting question. I think it comes just, uh, because you have to see that these big boats that caught the tuna, the, the 900 ton capacity boats that caught the tuna, all of this tuna was for canning. So this tuna is put into a brine that is minus, I don't know how many degrees. I mean, they put the whole tuna, guts in everything in this brine and it freezes and it's hard as a rock. And then when you get to port, then the whole tuna is cooked guts in everything. And then after that, they take out the, the loins and put them in the can. And then the can is cooked again. So the tuna is cooked twice and that's tuna. So this tuna that, that comes in the brine, if you were to like have a steak or make a sashimi with it, it has this terrible flavor because it has already this, all this salt in it to conserve it. Because I mean, the boat has enough food and, and uh, fuel for uh, to be out at sea for three months. I mean, you can't be out there for three months, not touch land, but I mean, the only way to conserve for, to preserve the tuna is in this, in this brine solution. So the way to, to eat it and enjoy it is to smoke it. I mean, if you get it off the boat after it has been on the brine for, I don't know, a month, then you thaw it. And then this tuna, if you smoke it, you don't have this, this uh, flavor and it's a, a hot smoke. The fire is underneath the coals, and it's just the, the direct the heat is underneath the the tuna. So it, it's a it's it's the smoking where the fish like crumbles, no? If you want to call it like that, it's not like for slicing like salmon, like cold smoke. And how come they don't export it to New York? I'll bring you some. I promise. <laughs> I love it. Those tostadas, the tuna, I love them. Oh yes, that's fantastic. Definitivamente. What is the name of the woman that sells them? Sabina la Guerrerense. Guerrero. Yep. Yeah. Y luego, what are the snacks do they make with fish over there in Ensenada? Well, right now the tiradito has become a thing. I mean, everybody just loves the, the raw fish, slice. Everybody adds the meat. In Manzanilla, we do it with serrano peppers and ginger, a little bit soy sauce. I say this a lot. I mean, if the Japanese have been putting soy sauce on the raw fish for so many years, it's for a reason, no? There is no need to put honey on it, something like that, no? Well, we should be able to do it as Mexicans, no? Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Ceviche is very big. Ceviche is very interesting here um, in the north because, I mean, I grew up with Acapulco-style ceviche. But here in the north, the, the, they grind the meat like a, on a meat grinder. Oh. So it's like really, really thin. It's almost like crumbles. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's a very different experience. In the meat grinder, they put some onions too, and it's all just like if you were going to make sausage. Yeah, yeah. I used to make that at the restaurant. Very typical of this part. And uh, I think also the, the oysters are very big. There is this uh, Almejas, Almejas, that, that is a beautiful story. Going south to San Quintin, they have like these old fridges, like the ones you open like this, uh -huh. and, and turn them into smokers. 
and they make chocolate clams or pismo clams with some uh, basic uh, pico de gallo, maybe sometimes, sometimes some bacon, and just put them on a uh, este, papel aluminio. ¿Cómo es papel? Aluminum paper, no? And just smoke them slowly there. And after that, they give you this broth, this really hot broth. They on, I mean, open the clams and chop them and put them in the broth. So it would be like a hot ceviche or soup or smoke. It's wow. A of everything. Wow. It's really interesting. Thing. Wow. We have to go, baby. That sound, we have to go. Holy shit. That sounds claro. awesome. Que toma. <laughs> so we have, I have a lot of relatives around there. Oh, well, we'll plan it. Oye, mi Benito, me tengo que arrancar porque tengo que ir a chambear, pero te quiero un chingo, ¿eh? I, I Yo también. Thank Muchas you. gracias. Un honor estar con ustedes, de no, verdad, Zarela. No, 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 a treasure of information. This is exactly what we wanted to have here on Cooking in Mexican from A to Z. You know, we're on Heritage Radio Network and this is what Hasta it's luego. all about. Yeah. Hola, querido. Vamos a hacer Te quiero un chingo, muchos besos. ¿eh? Okay. Hasta Abrazo. luego, mamá. Bye. Cooking in Mexican from A to Z is powered by Simple Cast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without your support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Yeah.